0: church from being what it's called to be and doing what it's called to do than disunity. I don't believe that the enemy loves anything more or is more satisfied and the Savior is more distressed than disunity in the church. The first church I served at Mount McGill Covenant Church in San Diego, I was just at a seminary, 29 years old. And when I got there, uh, there was obvious a rift between two of the leaders of the church. Uh, one was a trustee, one was a deacon. Uh, both men at the time, I thought, were very old. They were in their 50s. Yikes. And uh, and leaders in the church and greatly uh, respected by a lot of people in the church. But there was some tension always between these two men. So I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just out of seminary, right? So I call them into my office, the two of them, to uh, have a reconciliation and, and and kind of work out whatever their problems were. It started in business. They were both in business together, which is always a problem. But um, it started in business, but then it infected the church and they really basically hated each other. So in our meeting together, I shared with them some of the verses that you just read there and some that we'll be looking at today about the importance of unity in the body of Christ. And I said one time I said, you know what? Uh, this is about the love of Jesus that both of you have and both of you proclaim the love of Jesus. And Jess, at that point, he was really angry at, 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 at Howard and he got up and, at, and he said, I'll show you the love of Jesus. And he went towards Howard like he was going to just kill him. And I was standing between these two men. they were trying to get at each other, swinging wildly. And I finally separated them. And I said, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you now that is just one example in fact i I went online and looked under church fights don 't do that it 's really gross. well, you, now you 're going to do it, of course, and, uh, but you're going, and you have these these in the middle of a service, a deacon and a pastor duking it out, and everybody 's fighting and it 's just ridiculous. Disunity is like a tumor. all the blood. In the body flows to the diseased area and dilutes the strength of the body, just like the body of Christ. When there's disunity, all the blood, all the energy, all the juice in the church flows to that weak area. And it takes our focus and our mind off of the thing that God has called us to. A friend of mine who lives here in Arizona, I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago. And I said, you know, why don't you just come and try out our church? We're different You know, we we don't condemn, you know, we welcome everyone. Just come and try. He said, the main reason I don't want to be a Christian is that you people can't even get along with yourselves. And that really struck me in the heart. I mean, if you look at the, the headlines that churches make, that's usually what it's about. Churches that can't get along. They disagree about doctrine. They disagree about politics. They disagree about everything. Something is wrong. When the world looks at us and says that they don't want to be a part of us because we can't get along. Well, we sing kumbaya. And we even say they will know we are Christians by our love. But do they? I believe one of the greatest statements as to the relevance and timeliness of the church of Jesus Christ is where it is united in heart and purpose. You want to show the world that the church is relevant? Love one another. Yeah, I know, Pastor, but I don't really like that guy sitting on the other side of the church. Well, you know what? God never really asked you whether you liked somebody. He simply commanded you to love one another. Now, John, who wrote the gospel, in one of his epistles said it this way. We love because... He first loved us. We love each other because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love God. Now, I know that's one of the passages in the Bible that some of you have torn out of your Bible because you don't really like it very much. But is this passage of Scripture in any way to any of you ambiguous? (laughs) Is there any way that you can misunderstand what God is communicating to you? Love God. Love the church. Love God. Love the individuals in the church. Doesn't mean we always get along. Doesn't mean we always agree. Doesn't mean that at all. Love God, love the church of Jesus Christ. This is the way that our love for God is seen in the world. This is the way we reveal our love for God. This is the way we show our love for God. This is the way our love for God is manifested to the world by how we love one another. The world sees the church as relevant when we truly and deeply love each other. Now, we all know what it means to not be united. Uh, we've all been part of churches like that. The church I described, my first church uh, out of seminary, it was, a, it was a great church, but there was an infection in the church. And that infection was disunity. And it wasn't surprising to me when I, when I kind of looked at that church. It was a small church when I went there, maybe 150 people. And, uh, but but, but what, what that infection did is that all of the blood and energy in the church flowed to that. They hadn't seen one person converted to Christ for years. This is a covenant church. They hadn't had one real experienced, uh, experience of a transformation by, of a human being to Jesus Christ for years. And part of it is because all of the energy in the church, instead of being focused, as the guy said, on JC, it was focused on disunity, I have been part of churches where individuals are motivated by agendas. They're manipulative, self-serving, me-centered, inflexible, prone to control and pride, and sometimes that describes me as well. I, I remember when I first uh, again went to that church; it was just the beginning of what uh, we call the music wars. Now, those of you that have been around church for the last 30 years know what I mean with the music wars. Uh, Satan described it as, you know, between the organ and the electric guitar. But more realistically, the music wars have been between hymns and worship songs or contemporary music. And I remember when I first came to our church here at Hope uh, over in the strip mall, we talked about that. What kind of music do we want to have? And uh, the discussion was, well, I like this, and I like that, and I like that, and everybody likes something different. I said, how about if we do this? How about if we all remove from our vocabulary what we like? Huh? Yeah, let's just, just ignore what we like. And what will be the most effective way to reach someone that maybe has never been in church, the most effective way to get them connected to what we're trying to say and do in terms of music, and somebody said, "Well, that would be contemporary music. People are used to kind of rock and roll since the 1950s, and and they're kind of used to an upbeat kind of way of singing. and And maybe if we do that kind of music, maybe that will be attractive to people to know Christ, and maybe that will be one vehicle to help them come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why we do the music we do today. We don't not do hymns because we don't love hymns. In fact, one older man in our church, this is way back." I said to me, he came to me He said, you know what, Dwayne, I just don't like the music we're doing. It's too upbeat and too razzy and I, I, want, oh, I want hymns. And I explained to this man what I believe sacrifice is. And this is what sacrifice is. Sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love even more. And sometimes that's what it is with things like music or a certain way of doing things in church or how we do tradition and those kinds of things. Giving up something we love, hymns, for something we love even more. The opportunity over the past several years to see literally hundreds of people come to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that that's an equal, you know, one-on-one correspondent, but it's part of it. And God has blessed us. And that's what it means to be unified. Instead of unified around what I want, what my preference is, what, what I really love, be unified around what is going to be the best thing, the best vehicle, whether it's preaching or music or the way we do a boutique or anything else, what's going to be the best way, the best vehicle to reach one more person for Jesus Christ. That is what we're focused on. And that's why I believe Hope Covenant Church has been a church almost free of disunity. And it's really quite a blessing. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 4. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, Binding yourselves together in peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. One in the spirit. Now, we all have come from different traditions. Uh, many of you have come from no tradition in terms of church. I grew up in a very fundamental, uh, it was a combination of Nazarene, Southern Baptist, and Pilgrim of Holiness, which makes, that's why I'm so confused. And, and we've all grown up in different kinds of, of denominations. And it reminds me of the, 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 the little boys that were talking about their churches. And there's three little boys. One little boy said, well, I'm Baptist, and this is what we believe. And the other little boy said, well, I'm Methodist, and this is what we believe. And and the two boys turned to the other boy who hadn't said anything. And they said, what abomination do you belong to? And sometimes I I think that God thinks that denominations are an abomination. It divides. It separates. But we want to be united in Christ. We are to become one because we belong to Jesus. And he has given us a task, a purpose, to do everything in our power to reach one more for Jesus, whatever that looks like. It's not about my personal preference. Not about your preference, about how we go about things, but what is effective in reaching one more person for Jesus Christ. Any disunity or quarreling among us takes the life, the energy, the juice away from our appointed task of reaching one more for Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why there is so much cooperation among denominations on the mission field? Now, you couldn't get... uh, we, we We have in the afternoon... A United Methodist Korean Church that meets in our building, and we do it for free. We just said we just want we want to give you a, a you know a start and however we can help you. So down the street, <laughs> you know where uh, the church is just on the other side of the freeway. Down the street is a Presbyterian Korean Church. I suggested to the little Methodist Church here that they might consider going to that church. Not that we don't want them here, but you know what? This is you're all Christians. Why don't you? And they said, are you kidding? Us hang out with Presbyterians. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, that's kind of narrow. And then I thought, well, they've learned it from us. I mean, they've learned it from Americans. Right. And, and this idea that we divide ourselves Well, on the mission field, that's different. We work. Uh, we have a significant mission field that the Evangelical Covenant Church does in Zaire or Congo, whichever you want to call it this week. And uh, we have we have dozens of missionaries. And thousands of baptized Christians that are part of Evangelical Covenant Church. In fact, we have more baptized members of churches in Zaire than we do in the United States. That shows you how effective our mission work has been in Zaire. But we cooperate with Southern Baptists, Lutherans, Assembly of God, and Methodists. And even some Catholics. We cooperate with all of those. And do you know why they get along? Because they have one focus. Reaching that next person in the Congo. For Jesus Christ. That's what God wants from every church and from every person. Let's just speak for us. That's what God wants from Hope Covenant Church. The reason I chose um, Evangelical Covenant Church, because I I, I grew up, as I told you, in a non-denominational church, but when I was looking for seminaries, I was looking at all the ones in Southern California—Talbot Theological Seminary, Fuller. I looked in Dallas and all of the ones because I was really, I was really kind of fundamental in my views. And, and, uh, but then I met Sherry, and she introduced me to the Evangelical Covenant Church. She and her family grew up in a covenant church, and when I discovered what they believed, I thought, you know what, this really makes sense for me. High, high, high value of Scripture, high view of Scripture, high view of uh, reaching one more for Christ. And other, and we believe all the, you know, the orthodox things that most churches believe. And but, 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 the things that we celebrate, the things that we lift up above everything else, are those two things. And that you've heard me say this: the two hills that we will die on. Every person can experience new life in Jesus Christ, and the Bible is the Word of God. Those are the two hills we'll die on. Everything else we'll discuss, may even disagree, may even argue, but we will not focus on one doctrinal issue over here and squawk about that. And forget the mission that God has called us to. That's what I believe the Covenant Church provides for me as a pastor. And I think for many of you as well. If you're a part of HOPE or considering... In fact, right now we have about 16 people in that conference room that are in our core class. And they're considering membership. And when you do that, you need to understand that we will major on the majors. And we will not major on the minors. We will focus on reaching one more for Jesus Christ. And, and we do this together. We do this together. And um, in fact, we're taking in new members on December 4th. If you're interested in membership, if you've been to the core class, uh, send me an email or mark on the, on the response card and, and I'll get you a membership covenant. But from Scripture, I want to share with you today how we can foster unity as a covenant church and specifically as Hope Covenant Church. How do we foster unity? And the first way is this. By affirming each other's worth. When you and I affirm each other, amazing things take place. When you and I show love, real love for each other, we are acting like Jesus. Our words, and the writer of Proverbs said that our words can give life or take away life. And we all know that, especially with children. Your words can breathe life into another human being or into a situation or into a meeting. Or your life can breathe death into that situation. So the words that we speak really matter. They really can have the power to build up a life or tear a life down. When we tell someone else that we love them, that you're a princess of the kingdom, that you matter to God, when we tell someone else that that their life really makes a difference to me, man, you are breathing life into that person. Well, Pastor, how do we do that? How do we uh, affirm each other? Let me, let me show you a couple of ways that we can affirm each other. The first is we can affirm each other with acceptance. Now, Romans fifteen seven says, Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Now, this does not say that you're accepting, you know, your carte blanche their uh, lifestyle or their uh, doctrine or anything else but you're accepting them as a human being, as, a, as a, a person who is loved by God and a person that you know. You accept them. Accept one another. I am to accept you because God, quite honestly, has accepted me. In spite of my enormous flaws, my warts, my quirks, my inconsistencies and my sins, God has accepted me. And for me not to accept you under those same circumstances is really unchrist like I don't accept any of you because you are perfect or because you're similar to me or similar interests or similar political agenda or a similar age to me, but I I accept each of you because you and I share the same Heavenly Father. You're my brother. You're my sister. The truth of the matter is that if God lifts someone up and God has lifted me up and God has lifted Steve up and Lonnie, if God has lifted you up, then you're up. <laughs> you're up. You may not be perfect. You may not press into that upness like you should, but you're up. And how? who on earth would I be to say, I deny my love for you because of something you do or say? God forbid. Jesus said, love one another. Didn't say love them if they're good. Love them if they're perfect. Love them if they do the right stuff. Love one another. That's what we are called to do. And to be. We affirm each other. We affirm each other's worth with acceptance. But we also affirm each other's worth with attention. Not just acceptance, but attention. Galatians 6.10 says, Give special attention to those who are in the family of believers. Now here's the general principle. Whatever you pay attention to will grow. If you pay attention to your yard, to your grass, to your flowers... If you weed them and you water them and you trim them, if you pay attention to your your garden, it will grow. That's why people that say to me, "Well, I'm I'm looking for another husband because you know, Mr. Potato Head's no good anymore." You know, and they're looking for the grass is greener on the other side, right? Right? Well, actually, no. The grass is greener where you water it. The grass is greener where you water. It's not on the other side of the hill. So if you have a problem with somebody, you start watering them, start enabling them, start growing them. So the things that we pay attention to grow. Our gardens, our kids, our marriage, our work, the things that we pay attention to are the things that grow. Now, the only place this doesn't work is on my hair. Um, <laughs> the more attention I pay to it, the, the less I have. But, um, but, but, but the greatest gift that, I, gift that we have to give each other is simply love. It, 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 it is love. It's not diamonds, flowers, chocolate. It's a love. And that love many times is translated as attention. To look someone in the eye and say, you matter to me. One of my favorite times of the week is 30 minutes at 8.30 on Sunday morning, 8.30 to 9 o'clock, and then 10.15 to 10.45, and then 12 12.00 o'clock to 12.30. Those are some of my favorite times of the week because that's when I have a chance to look you in the eye, shake your hand, more likely hug you unless you get away, and, 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 and just look at you and say, you know, somehow, some way, I want you to know that you matter to me. Now, I, I get to maybe see 200 of you on Sunday, less than half of you that I actually look at face-to-face. I wish I could do more. But what I would love to do is have a conversation with each and every one of you. Because that's one way I communicate my love for you. So this is an open invitation always. You can always just call up, make an appointment, we'll get together, we'll go have a cup of coffee and we'll talk and get to know each other. But I want you to know that you matter to me. The best way I can do that, just by paying attention to you. On Sunday morning, do what I do. Don't hang out with your friends. Man, meet the new people. Hang out with people you don't know very well. That's how you show you accept them. Another way we can affirm each other is with affection. Now, you've all heard the failure to thrive syndrome, the lack of TLC, tender loving care, which is called marasmus, The children that are raised in orphanages and places without this tender loving care, they're less intelligent, they're less social, they're more apt to antisocial behavior. We know all about that. But a UCLA study that was done a few years ago indicated that not for just children, but for adults, that for us to live a healthy life, we need between 8 and 10 touches a day. 8 and 10 somehow touches a day. Handshake, hug, pat on the shoulder. Now, guys, these are non-sexual touches, right? So 8 to 10 good touches a day. Meaningful touches a day. I mean, that, 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 that communicates something, and we all need that. Now, some of you wonder, you know, why... I give so many hugs. Uh, you know what? One reason I, because I didn't used to be a hugger. Sherry taught me that. She taught me really well. And uh, uh, so, so I didn't used to be a hugger. I was like my dad. I'd like, if somebody came toward me, I'd, you know, like this, shake my hand, you know. Some of you are still like that. And that's all right. But, uh, the, the, but the reason I, I'm a hugger now is because sometimes I wonder when I hug someone, I wonder how long this is going to have to last. How long, how long is this hug going to have to last before this person maybe gets another hug or another touch by another human being? I, I, I give hugs at church, and I, and I and I and I'm kind of famous for that. Two weeks ago, a new lady came to church, and I was just hugging one after another. And I hugged her, and she looked at me like, "What are you doing? I don't even know you." <laughs> well, she came back the next Sunday. Thank God. I thought maybe I scared her away. Now, if you get my way, you're going to get hugged. Okay, just know that. Some of you go to the side doors. I recognize that. I respect that. Some of you leave early, you know, because you're chicken. And and, and and you can run and hide, but eventually you're going to get hugged. Uh, uh, even Becky Krueger and Andy Carey have been hugged by me, even though they try desperately, desperately to stay away from that. So let, let's do an exercise. You can say, oh, no, please stand up. That's right. Everybody stand up. You can do this on your two feet. Okay. Now, I'm going to ask you, first of all, stretch a little bit. You know, stretch, touch your toes, touch your neighbor's toes if you can. You know, OK, now I'm going to ask you to to somebody that you don't know very well or a total stranger. I want you to either either hug them or shake their hand or high five them, whatever you're comfortable with. But do that right now. OK, everybody uh, show that kind of affection. OK, OK, that's enough. That's enough. Gee, you guys, you guys are starving for hugs. I mean, you are starving for hugs. Now, I I know that this this engenders engenders two kinds of reactions. One is I'm never coming to this church again. And the other reaction is next time I'm going to sit by a cute girl in case, uh, you know, in case we, we have to do this again. But the scripture tells us in Romans 12, love one another with brotherly affection as members of one family. So here's your assignment. In the next week, I want you to hug 20 people. And it can't be your wife 20 times. Okay. Hug 20 people. And before you leave church today, try and get five of those in. Okay. Now there's one last way to affirm uh, one another, and that is with appreciation. Every time you appreciate someone, their value increases. Now, we used to say that about houses. <laughs> we can't anymore. Uh, but every time you appreciate someone, just like a house used to be, their value increases. To others and to themselves. First Thessalonians 5.12 says, Brothers and sisters, appreciate those who work hard among you, who lead you in the Lord and teach you. I, I, I love that. Andy Sandley, who's one of my favorite uh, preachers, I listen to his sermons, um, uh, he says that in the church, if you really want to be someone to bless your church and affirm your church, you need to be a raving fan of your church. None of this side talk, criticism, well, I wish he had have worn a different shirt. or you know, like a, you know, None of that kind of stuff. You know? Be a raving fan of your church and of your pastor. And then in private, be a humble critic. I, love, I respect people who have a criticism or a concern or something. They come to me in private and, and with humility. They say, Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I believe. Here's what I think. And I receive that so well. And other, stuff, our other staff members do as well. But in public, a raving fan of your church. And in privacy, a humble critic. Tell people that you care for them, tell your leaders. Tell new people that you see them, that you're really glad that they're here today. Invest and invite. Tell your, when you pick up your children, look your child's teacher right in the eyes and say, thank you so much for blessing my child today, for teaching my child about Jesus. Tell Pastor Barb what she does really matters to you. When you see your teenager running through the church and wish that, oh, no, I wish my teenager wouldn't run through the church, do you know what I say to that? Let them run through the church. They're in the church, you know. And when you see the teenagers, and there's 40 of them over here right now learning about God's love, when you see them, you tell them, if you know them by name, if you don't ask their names, you really matter to me and to the church. And they'll go, what? You know, Are you weird? But, but that's all right. Be weird for the kingdom's sake, right? Tell people, tell Pastor Brian and tell Craig Smith and tell other people uh, that are teaching your teenagers that they matter to you. Folks, th- this is magic. This is magic. If you desire to be united in heart and purpose as a church of Jesus Christ, affirm each other with acceptance, attention, affection, and appreciation. That was another, I believe, really profound way that we can experience unity in the church. And this will sound easy, but this is really important, uh, by praying for each other. By praying for each other. Uh, sometimes... Um, uh, I get here first, usually, um, unless Scott has to set up the stage. Uh, but I get here first, and uh, I, I turn on all the lights. I, what Sharon Lacey calls, she says, I go around and wake up the church. And um, I spend some time in the sanctuary. And, um, and I pray for you. Some of you, I don't even know by name, but I'm trying to learn that. And I, and I pray for you, and I, I envision some of you sit in the same seats every week. Uh, Steve and Lonnie sit right here every week in the first service. And if you try and take their seats, they'll, they'll let you know. In the second service, Matt and Bree Kuyper sit right there. And, and uh, Martin and Lucinda always sit over here. And Mike and Judy Wolf usually right over here. In the second service, Mona, and it's Ron and Rita Roper. And, 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 and I see you, and I pray for you. I pray for you. We have a ministry of prayer in our church. Uh, every uh, Tuesday night, Steve and Lonnie lead this ministry from 6 to 7. We pray for, your, for you, the, the needs that you write in your bulletins and your response cards. We pray for them, each one by name. And other things that we know of, we, we pray for you. Every Sunday morning at 8.15, we meet in my office, and it's open to anybody. It's basically the altar team, but it's open to any, from 8.15 to 8.30 in my office, and we pray for you. And this morning, you should have heard some of the prayers. Praying for you. Lord, if there's someone that's hurting today, would you just meet their need? If there's someone that doesn't know you today, would you help them to know that Jesus loves them? If there's someone that has a broken heart over a a lost marriage or a lost child, Lord, would you minister to them today? These are people praying for you. As you're still putting on your pants at home, as you're still eating your English muffin, people are praying for you. Listen to what the Word of God says about praying for each other. I'll just tick these off. Ephesians three eighteen and 19. I pray you'll be able to feel and understand how long, wide, deep, and high Christ's love really is and to experience this love for yourselves. Isn't that a wonderful prayer to pray for somebody that sits next to you on Sunday morning? Isn't that a wonderful prayer to pray for somebody that you know that's going through a divorce? You pray for Evie Agarulic. You pray for someone who knows that has a broken heart over divorce. You pray for them those words so that they will feel and understand how long and wide and deep and high Christ's love really is. Hebrews thirteen twenty one. I pray you will always be eager to do right. Isn't that a great prayer for each other? Romans fifteen thirteen. I pray God who gives hope will fill you with much joy and peace while you trust in Him. Ephesians 1.17, I pray God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. 2 Thessalonians 3.5, I pray the Lord will guide you to be His as loving as God, as patient as Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Ephesians 3.16, I pray God may strengthen you with power through His Spirit. And Romans 15.5, may God develop maturity in you so that you get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with all of us. Isn't that beautiful? When you pray for someone, it's hard to be angry at them. I, Sharon and I always talk when, if we feel like someone's hurt us or something like that, a, a friend or a family member, we pray for them and we pray for God's blessing on them. We don't pray at them. God make them realize that they hurt me, but we pray for them. And, and if you think, you wonder if you have a, 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 a Um, a problem with somebody or if someone is not really in a place in your heart they should be. Ask yourself this question. Can they walk through your mind unharmed? They can't. Pray for them. One last way to foster unity, to be united in heart and purpose, is by admitting our own brokenness. Ephesians 4.25 says, tell each other the truth because we all belong to each other. As, As you know, in my dark days uh, from 1997 to 2000, when I was recovering from my gambling addiction, I remember at first, the first year I was always, you know what, yeah, I, I, I gambled and I was deceitful and it was wrong. But you know what? The church did this. And I would tell people, and you know, I was wrong, and I confess and I'm sorry, and I'm sad. And I'm like, but you know what? Sherry wasn't very nice to me during those couple of years. Well, of course she wasn't. I was gone all the time. And I always have somebody else to, and finally my counselor told me, Jim Sundholm, he said, you know when you're recovering, when you recognize that your sin is your sin alone. No one made you sin. No one put a gun to your head and said, do the wrong thing. No one is responsible for your behavior except for you. No one is responsible except for you. And when I got to that point, I think when any of us get to that point, we realize that God's grace and his forgiveness and his mercy is just around the corner. James 5.16 says, admit your faults to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. One of the, I believe, key reasons that we have experienced extraordinary unity in our church. And I can say that because in the 11 years that I've been here, I don't, we haven't had one major rift We've had individuals that have been unhappy about something. We've tried to bridge that. But we, and I've never been in a church where there wasn't a major rift at some time where people are up in arms against each other. We've never experienced that. And I believe one of the reasons is because of this extraordinary unity and our extraordinary growth is because of our transparency. See, when, when you say, It's on me, it's my bad, I did it, I'm sorry. What I did to you, not expecting you to say anything in return. I am sorry. What I did to you, what I said to you, was wrong. And I repent. Please forgive me. You know, when you do that, it pulls the plug on passion and on anger. It pulls the plug on that. Take responsibility for yourself. And when we do that, we step out of darkness into light. And we experience true love and fellowship and unity some of my closest friends are in this ch- in this church are ones that I've had conflicts with but we have as brothers and sisters we have just made it work john 1 john 1:7 says if we live in the light then we have fellowship with one another those who are prideful or focused on their own agenda or their other sins you always ask i always ask myself well, what, what are they hiding You know, people that are always pointing the finger, they're the ones usually that have the log in the eye, you know. Admit our faults. And when we do admit our faults, and some of you have been gracious with it, when I've admitted my faults to you, I always want you to be humble and respectful and gentle with me. Because it's hard to say, it's my fault. It's hard for you to say that. It's hard for me to say that. But when you do that and when you receive that, be gentle and respectful. Because we're taking a risk by being genuine, by being humble. And that provides powerful unity in the body of Christ. We will not let petty disagreements dictate our view and our vision for reaching one more for Jesus Christ. We will not. Lord, make Hope Covenant Church a church that is united in heart and purpose. I want to close by, if you have your sermon notes, write some of this down. I want to give you four things that I would pray that you would commit to today. Now, some of you aren't in a position where you'd want to do that, but some of you are. I want you to write down these four things, commitments that you can make around unity. Number one is this. I commit to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. Now, if you're not a believer today, and we all every Sunday we have people in our church that haven't made that decision, and we love you and respect you for where you are, let me ask you a different question. Would you make a commitment to this? What will it take for me to take one step closer to God? That's all. Just make that commitment. If you're not a Christian, just that one commitment, what will it take for me to take one step closer to God? But for the rest of us, I commit to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. Number two, I commit to affirm every person I come in contact with. Every person. A touch, a word, a smile, a look, including our youth and children. Number three, I commit to pray for those I know, and those who serve me. And number four, I commit to live an authentic, transparent life. That is God at work in a church, transforming, making a church united so that their purpose, their focus, their vision is one thing and one thing alone. What can we do to help one person more come to Jesus Christ would you bow your heads with me please we would pray father that um, even in this quiet moment that um, these four commitments would be not something we just blow by and just kind of say well maybe some other time but that we would take even this moment now right here at the close of our service and say Lord that's what I want to that's the commitment I want to make to you I want to make that because I want to be part of a church that is unified. A church that knows where they're going and was, will not be deterred from getting there by anything. And, and so I just want to give you a moment, brothers and sisters in Christ. If, if you want to make this commitment, you need to do some work between you and God. You need to simply tell him that. So in the quietness of this moment, I invite you to into a ver- the very real presence of Jesus and to give you an opportunity to speak Those words of commitment to him if your heart desires.